Hebrews 11.23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months of his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. That's what the word proper there means, a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Let's pray. Lord, we think of Moses mentioned in this passage, and we just marvel at his faith, the faith of his parents and his faith, to have the kind of courage to stand up against a pagan king, one of the most powerful kings who's ever lived, and to look him in the eyes and say, let my people go to speak your words to that king. Lord, it reminds us of things that happened in later times. Elisha standing up against Ahab on Mount Carmel. It reminds us of Elisha and how he looked at the armies that were coming to destroy him. And when his Servant was afraid, said, Lord, open his eyes. <clears throat> we think of Jesus standing before Pilate, of Paul standing before Nero. Lord, throughout the centuries, your people have stood in this position, just like Moses, and by faith, they forsook their Egypts. So help us, Lord, to have the same worldview, to have the same vision for our time, and to stand up, not in a political sense at all, but entirely in a spiritual sense. To stand up against evil wherever it is and say, enough. This is not God's way. Help us to do that, I pray. Give us this kind of courage that only comes from being able to see the one who is invisible. To see you through your word. Give us that kind of courage. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This past week, my wife shared with me a really funny story about our niece, Kate, who is learning her letters. She's uh, a four, and just at that point in life where you're learning to read, and there's a little song, I guess, that goes with the alphabet, uh, and it was something like this. She was singing... A is for crocodile, and, and, um, and she's in the other room, and her mom is listening to A is for crocodile. It didn't take long before this is bothering her because A is not for crocodile. So she yells into the other room, no, Kate, A is not for crocodile, it's for alligator. A is for alligator. Everybody who can read knows A isn't for crocodile, it's for alligator. And, and then Kate was undeterred by this and said back, no, A is for crocodile. And so now they're having an argument, a four-year-old and her mother, over what A stands for. 
And Kate's response after her mother is just certain to her, you know, it is for alligator. She says, I have a picture. And, and of course, if you know what a crocodile looks like and what an alligator looks like, you understand why a four-year-old might think A is for crocodile. You know, the world looks at the picture of life and says, there is no God. If they're willing to believe in a God, they believe in a God that's not the God revealed in the Bible. No, even if they're not atheists, people who say there's no God, maybe they're agnostic, that's people who say, I don't know if there's a God. Even if they're not atheists or agnostic, usually they end up following a false God, and Satan doesn't care. He's happy either way. Follow no God, false God, don't know if there's a God. Either way, Satan has them. And they look at their traditions, science, whatever is the center of their faith, and they say A is for crocodile. Let me give you an example. Recently, our friends at the Wilds posted a little advertisement uh, on Facebook. And it had a picture of Morris Gleiser. He's an evangelist. He's preached here on a few occasions. And um, it had a little quote that Morris gave during one of his sermons he preached this summer. And this is the quote they pulled from his sermon. Morris said, you'll never know satisfaction until you get to the point in life where you say, God, you are in charge of my life. I surrender it all to you. Well, that's good preaching. But uh, a lady came on to the Wilds site, onto their Facebook site. Apparently she has some background with the Wilds or, or with a church that would send their teens to the Wilds. And she responded this way, uh, no, I am no longer surrendering to an imaginary friend. Nothing fails like prayer and submission, end quote. Well, as you can imagine, that drew some responses from people who love the wilds, trying to encourage this lady to turn and trust God. Someone posted, God is real, and I'll pray that he reveals himself to you in a way that you'll be 1,000% positive that he is the one in charge. And I read that, and I know the heart behind what this person wrote, but the question I had in reading it is, well, hasn't God done that already? Hasn't he already revealed himself? Remember, a worldview is a way of looking at life. It's one's perspective from which he interprets how things are a collection of one's beliefs. It's the lens through which one sees everything. It's, some say, a framework through which we make sense of what is. And a biblical worldview begins with the first verse in our Bible. In the beginning, God created. There is a creator God. And while the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky 
His majesty, it's through his word that he reveals himself to us. We know God through his word. That, that brings us then to the second part of our worldview. Not only is there a creator God, but he has revealed himself. God has not hidden himself from mankind. He has made everyone see who he is. But that revelation is not just simply there. It's not just simply present. The God who reveals himself demands that we trust and respond to his commands and promises. God isn't just simply saying, I am God. He is saying, I am your God. You must follow me. You must believe in me. You must trust me. And so that sense of response is that third element of the worldview. And then in conclusion, we come to that fourth idea that underlying all of this is in us, in our response to him, to his commands and promises, this God who's revealed himself, we fear him. Let me say it this way. It's a faith response to what God has revealed. God says it's going to rain, you build a boat. That's no. God says, go to another country, you call your realtor on the phone. And that underlying reason of why all of this works so well and fits together so nicely is because underneath it all, we have this righteous, godly fear of the Lord. In fact, if I were to set pen to paper and write on this subject, my worldview would be called the worldview of godly fear. Because I don't think a biblical worldview can be anything other than that. We find here in our text an example of this worldview. That's why I've called this entire series the worldview of the witnesses. In the life of Moses, and I just chose him. There were others. I thought of preaching of Abel, of preaching of Joseph and Jacob, but I, I settled on Moses. It's a major portion of this passage, but also there's just so much here that talks about what under is underlying our worldview, this righteous and godly fear of God. And we see here then first that faith living does not fear man. Fearing man is not faith. In fact, faith living does not fear man's unrighteous laws. You look at verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months of his parents because he saw they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Egypt's ruler decreed that the Hebrew boys were to be murdered. That's the king's command. Hold your place here and let's go back to Exodus chapter 1. I want you to see the king's commandment so that you can understand what's going on here. If you see here in Exodus 1.16, the king commanded the Hebrew midwives, the ladies who helped the children be born, Shipra and Puah, he said to them, when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, you will kill him. Do you see that? He, he commanded that the boys be murdered, the little baby boys. 
This is infanticide. This is horrible. And this is the king's command. And if you go down to verse 22, you find that because the Midgites were not really obeying his command, he made this command now countrywide. It was a nationwide law. Pharaoh charged all his people saying, every son that is born shall be cast into the river. Every daughter you will save alive. This is the king's commandment that actually the writer, the preacher of Hebrews is, is talking about. And this murderous law was because he was afraid of the Jews. He actually had a fear of man. If you're looking at Exodus 1, go back to verse 8. It says that, <clears throat> kind of concluding the story of Genesis, there arose a king in, in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, Exodus doesn't give us really a full-throated history of the Hebrew people. To know not Joseph means here that this king did not recognize any of the agreements that previous kings had made with Joseph and Joseph's people. So if you remember at the end of the story of Joseph, as he is being elevated to the rule of second in the kingdom of, in Egypt, that as that's taking place, that Pharaoh made agreements with Joseph. Your family can be here, they can settle in the land, and I'll take care of them. Those agreements now are being rejected. It's likely, historically, that Joseph uh, rose to power during a time called the Hyksos dynasty. That's in the 15th of the dynasties. This is after his enslavement. So he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He ends up in Potiphar's house. He ends up because he can interpret dreams through God's enablement. He rises to power in Egypt. Well, this part of Egypt uh, where Joseph was, it's likely that the Hyksos, who were a, a Semitic people from, from the lower Palestine region, had actually filtered down. It, it kind of makes sense. If that, if that uh, whole region was under a famine, remember, where, and, there was, and there was food in Egypt, then those people are kind of filtering south, kind of where the food is. It, it's like go out on a picnic uh, one summer and just pour a little bit of Coke out on the picnic table and wait. You'll get the ants, right? And this is kind of what's happening. And the Hyksos people came from this Palestine region and they descended down into Upper Egypt. And over time, they just became more numerous than the native Egyptian people and they took over the land. And there's a reason why they were called Hyksos. Uh, Josephus misinterpreted the word to mean shepherd kings. That wasn't right. It was later scholars who said, no, the interpretation of Hyksos is foreign invaders. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. So they, they tried, they moved south. In fact, later they tried to move farther south and were rebuffed. And Egyptian history makes a really big deal about this. But the people of Thebes in lower Egypt rose up to power and they expelled the Hyksos completely out of Egypt. Now, apparently at that time, the Jews were not expelled out of Egypt, but a lot of the foreign people were. And you can imagine, just keep in mind what we did to the Japanese uh, during World War II. You can imagine how the people of Egypt were feeling about foreigners. And if you think about that, now go to verse 8. There arose a king who didn't know Joseph, and he's not going to recognize any of those agreements. Of course he's not. 
That was under the people who were trying to, to take over our country. We expelled them. And with that went all of the agreements that were made with Joseph's family. And now verse 10 of Exodus 1 indicates the rulers of the region. It says they were afraid. They says, uh, come, let us deal wisely with the Hebrews, with Israel, lest they multiply and it come to pass. When there falls out any war, they join our enemies and fight against us. And so get them up out of the land. <clears throat> what actually is happening here is the new native rulers of Egypt are saying, we can't trust Israel. If, if we have another invasion from another country, they're going to align with them. And so we need to actually do something about them. And now you see in beginning in verse 11 that they begin to lay a burden, a tax upon the people of Israel. They enslave them to build these, these treasure cities of Pithom and Ramses. And the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they, they, that is, the Egyptians were grieved because of the children of Israel. And if you see what's happening here <clears throat> with, the, with the people hating these foreign, uh, what they consider a foreign element, a foreign invaders, they say, we've got to do something about these people. And they basically enslaved them. And then because of the slavery becomes so powerful, they become even during slavery more powerful they say, well, now the only answer we have is to kill their baby boys. <clears throat> and here we have then back in Hebrews, we have the story picked up by the preacher of Hebrews where he says Moses' parents saw that he was a proper child. They recognized, I don't think it means beautiful means good looks necessarily, but it's the idea that he just wasn't ordinary. I think in this sense, what the writer of Hebrews, this preacher who's preaching this sermon we call Hebrews, he's actually saying that, that Moses, they recognize, he's not ordinary. He's extraordinary. And because of that, in fact, Stephen mentions this in his sermon in Acts 7.20, that, that his parents realized God had a special plan for Moses' life. It says now, they decided not to fear the king. This doesn't mean they had no respect for the king. And the underlying word here is phobia, the word for fear. This is why they hid their child. They didn't fear him. They said, you know, I, I know God wants us to murder the boys, to cast them into the river, but we're not going to cast Moses into the river. And Exodus tell, tells us that they hid him in a waterproof basket among bulrushes in the Nile. They didn't fear the king's commandment. In fact, this unrighteous law, this, this unethical law that you murder all the boys, they said, we're not going to do that. We're going to disobey that law. But you'll see, secondly, they didn't fear, he does not fear man's angry threats. Fast forward then, verse 24, to Moses as an adult, and now he's come to years, and he says, I'm not even going to be Pharaoh's daughter. He rejects that part of his life. And in fact, verse 27, he finally forsakes all of Egypt. He's, not, he's no longer Pharaoh's daughter. That's when he's 40 years old. I think in verse 27, now he's 80 years old, and he's not fearing the wrath of the king. Moses turns away first from his upbringing in Egypt. Exodus tells us he was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter in the river, and she adopts him as her own. And he grows up as an Egyptian prince, which is 
likely why he was so well-educated. There are people who say, no way could Moses have written the Pentateuch. He couldn't have written those first five books of the Bible. He wouldn't have been that well-educated. But if you recognize that he grew up as an Egyptian prince and went to the Egyptian universities, remember, these are the people building the pyramids. They weren't stupid people. They were brilliant. And they understood all things about math and, and science. In their day, I understand it's not modern science, and, but, but they were pretty smart. And Moses is educated. He was a man of letters. And, and his life would have been one of relative comfort. And verse 24 states that he was recognized as her son. She, she actually claimed him to be her son, Pharaoh's own daughter. But he turns away from that life completely. In verse 24, he refuses to be connected to her. And in verse 27, he rejects the country at large. And if you, if you see here that the, the preacher, he's preaching a sermon, he's just kind of cramming Moses' life into five verses. He's skipping over large periods of time in Moses' life. He's got Moses as a baby. He's got Moses in verse 24 as, uh, verse 23 is a baby. Verse 24, he's 40 years old. Verse 27, he's 80 years old. And now he has no fear of the king. In fact, the old king wanted to kill him because he had murdered an Egyptian uh, taskmaster. Exodus 2, verses 11 and 12, he killed the man who was abusing a Hebrew slave. And 2.15 says, Pharaoh determined to execute Moses for this crime. And then in Exodus 4.19, God says to Moses, the one who wanted to kill you was dead. So Moses was afraid originally, right? He, he, he went to Midian. He fled from Egypt. So when it says now he didn't fear the king, it, it isn't Moses at 40. It's Moses after the burning bush. It's Moses after 40 years of leading sheep through a wilderness. <laughs> Is he going to do that again? It's Moses being trained by God to do the very task God wants him to do. And now he is at 80 years old in the court of Amenhotep III, one of the most powerful rulers in Egypt's history. This guy called himself, and I love this, Amenhotep the Great or Amenhotep the Magnificent, just depending on what block of granite you read where he inscribed his name. I love how those kings loved calling themselves that. Makes you wonder about Ivan the Terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in the early part of American history, uh, John Adams, when they were trying to figure out what to call George Washington, uh, he wanted to call him the great and magnificent potentate or something like that. It, it, somebody else said, no, we, that's too close to king. So they called him president. Kind of stuck. But here's this guy calling himself, I'm the great, I am the magnificent, and his rule was marked by splendor, both in the arts and in international power. Now here is, imagine, here is this incredibly powerful king. And Moses, he's been with sheep for 40 years. And he walks in with his shepherd's clothes and with his shepherd's staff in his hand. And he walks into this Egyptian king and he says, Thus saith Jehovah, let my people go, that they may serve me. That's having no fear of man. 
This guy could have you killed, Moses, for even seemingly to be belligerent. He could have you killed. Moses doesn't care. God sent him there on a mission. Let my people go. And Moses knew the God who can burn a bush but not consume it, the God who can do those kinds of things, who can turn a serpent into a snake, that God is with me. And now Moses stands before this Pharaoh and he commands, Pharaoh, this is what you must do. And at this point in scripture, you should start thinking, David before Goliath, Elijah before Ahab, Isaiah before Ahaz, Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar, Jesus before Pilate. You have no power over me except it was given to you from above. You're not even going to answer me? Jesus says, nope. Because you're not the one in charge in this room. And when the prophets and when God's people and when the Lord Jesus are standing there speaking God's words, in that moment, they are the most important person in the room. And Moses said, you're going to listen to God. He had no fear of man. So why do we fear men? Why do we fear their unrighteous laws? Why do we fear their angry threats? I think we sometimes do. I think, I think we show our fear of man by refusing to stand up against unrighteousness in the public square, in the arena of our community. And I called it the arena of our community because it is a spiritual battle at that place. When we actually are in a place where we are afraid to speak God's words. Now, I'm not talking because this is what's happened over the last five to seven years is that Christians have begun speaking political words in that arena. I'm not talking politics. I'm talking God's words. And sometimes God's words do seem to align with certain political positions, but oftentimes they do not. And it's kind of grotesque to see Christians in social media, in the public eye, speaking God's words for political reasons. That's gross. But, but then we are so afraid of being called political, maybe, that we don't speak up against unrighteousness, against ungodliness, because we're afraid of what people might think about us. We're afraid of how they will react. And, and I think it even goes further. Sometimes we refuse to share our faith with others. We, we stay quiet. We keep our mouths shut. And every time, friends, Every time we fear man, we fail to live by our faith, we are in essence agreeing with unbelief. We are in essence saying A is for crocodile. When we know that's not true. I know you go on vacation not to be at, the, at work. You want to be entertained. You want to get rid of stress. 
It's, it's vacation, right? Everybody goes on vacation. Even the Apostle Paul went on vacation. Of course, he went to Athens and ended up preaching, but he was on vacation, okay? Everybody goes on vacation. We were down at Disney World a number of years ago, standing out in front of, in Epcot at the American exhibit, and there was a man there, and we had little, our children were young at the time, and there was a man there preaching evolution. And it bothered me because my children were listening to this little thing he was saying. And so I began asking questions. And that didn't go over so well. Not only with him, but with people around us. It, you're there to be entertained. I know, I understand. But he wasn't entertaining any longer. He was preaching. So it was an opportunity for me to preach back a little bit. And as nice as I could, and as kindly as I could, I wanted him to know, I don't agree with you. What you're saying isn't just wrong. It's laughably wrong. You might as well say the earth was on the back of a turtle. And there were people who used to believe that, by the way. You might as well say there's this, some guy named Atlas, and he's kind of holding the whole thing up. And by the way, they're going to make this gym after him, right? But we are so afraid of being considered the oddball, of being, of being pushed out to the margins of our community. So afraid, sometimes we just won't speak God's words in that moment. That's the fear of man. My worldview just doesn't let me do that. And while faith living does not fear man, you see, this is really why, though it, it doesn't mean it fears no one, it doesn't fear man. Faith living fears God. That's point two. This is why we speak up. It, it chooses letter A, godly affliction or reproach over worldly blessings. Look at verse 25. Choosing rather to suffer afflictions with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproaches that Christ experienced. That's how I'm going to interpret that. Greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Moses' choice to follow God caused him difficulty. And he had a clear choice, right? I mean, it's like he was at the wilds and he heard the guy at the wilds say, only two choices on the shelf, Moses. Pleasing God, serving God, serving self. You got a choice. Here you are. You have, you have two clearly identifiable paths. You can go God's way. You can go Egypt's way. And you say, follow God, suffer affliction and reproach. Follow the world, pleasures of sin. Can you think of a sermon that Jesus preached that's just like that? Remember at the end uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about two roads, right? There are two paths. One's narrow, one's broad, one's straight, one's crooked. The idea, one's difficult and hard. That's the narrow road. That's the road that leads to life everlasting. And then there's the broad road that has lots of people on it. That's the road that leads to destruction. Moses, you can follow God. You'll suffer affliction and reproach, but you can follow the world too. You get a choice. You can be like Demas and leave God's task for your life because you love this present world. Following God here, Actually, I, I would even think in worldliness in this sense wasn't even so much the pleasures of Egypt. 
It was just forsaking Egypt entirely. Moses rejecting worldliness in his life was saying, I, I, don't want, I don't want Egypt in my life at all. I don't want to be associated with it. I don't want to be a part of it. And, and here he's, because of this, following God means identifying with his people. He went from prince to slave by his own choice. He lost the temporary relief of being a prince. All the pleasures that would have given him, all the relief that would have given him. And it's because he valued a relationship with God over the relationship that the world offered. Here's the application the preacher's making, right? A preacher's preaching his sermon. The writer of Hebrews is a preacher. He's preaching this sermon. And now he's making an application. Moses did not know Christ in the same sense that we know him, but he embraced the relationship with the messianic community that brought upon him the same reproaches that came upon its Messiah. I think that's what it means, this kind of squirrely section right here. He took upon him the reproaches that come with those who take upon themselves identifying with Christ. We would say it in discipleship terms, Moses picked up his cross and followed Jesus. That's kind of what's going on here. Because he valued something. You see what he says? The treasures of Egypt paled in comparison to his eternal reward. He was looking out and seeing the one who is to him invisible. Verse 27. He's, he's seeing, notice this, he is seeing God. That, that's amazing. That, that's really quite incredible. He's actually, not with his own eyes, this is faith. He's seeing God. This takes us all the way back to the beginning of Hebrews 11. This is the only way you can see the invisible one, is by faith. And that's what Moses is doing. And so he's looking and he's weighing in his mind, which is better, which is greater? I have the reward of God or I have the treasures of Egypt. And my friend, how is it that we sometimes value our world's treasures over our God. It makes no sense. Because we're not looking at it by faith. It is amazing to me watching how everybody scrambled about a month ago because somebody was going to get a billion dollars in a lottery. Oh, a billion dollars. I, I told you, I, I go to estate sales. I like going to estate sales. Two weeks ago, I was walking through one, and a young couple, apparently in their very first estate sale, they're walking up the stairs, and I hear the young lady, they look like they were just out of college, newly married. And they had that whole new, newly married vibe to them. You know, that kind of glowing, that, that if you've been married for 27 years, let's say, isn't quite the same, If you know what I mean? I mean, it's, oh, that's not bad. It's, that, it's, it's different. It's, you know, deeper and richer and fuller. And, and, uh, but, 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 you know, they just had that, you know, that, we're newlywed vibe. And, and the young lady said to me, it's so fun going through other people's things. Do you know what I say to myself? Every single house I go into, here's what, here's what runs through my mind, the verse, and whose shall these things be? Someday somebody's going to rummage through my underwear drawer, my sock drawer. Good luck. You know, they're going to hold up one of my sweaters and go, hmm, 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 I don't know. Two dollars. 
I'll wait for the half off after two o'clock. Or... And whose will these things be? Moses looked at the treasures of Egypt and said, whose will these things be? It's nothing, nothing to me. I want the reward that God gives. Not only does Moses' choice to follow God cause him difficulty in choosing to suffer affliction over worldly blessings, but, but this choice recognized God's authority over life choices. Through faith, verse 28, he kept the Passover, the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. This section on Moses kind of ends with this kind of strange addendum in verse 28, talking about the Passover. It could have ended with Moses in the wilderness. It could have ended with Moses on Pisgah uh, at the end of his life. It ends here with them about to leave Egypt. The Passover was instituted as the final plague in Egypt. You remember there were 10. There have been nine others. And the king each time said, okay, go ahead and go. And then the next day, no, you can't go. And, and, and there was a hardening process that God is actually doing as Pharaoh is refusing to surrender himself to God. And, and his heart is growing increasingly hard to God. And finally, God says, fine, I'm, I'm going to judge you. And he judges him in two stages. He, he sends this Passover angel, the death angel, and in the 10th plague, it kills the firstborn of Egypt, not, not even of people, but even animals, the firstborn that God says is mine in his law. He, he takes those firstborn. The death angel kills all of those people. It, it's interesting, by the way, God brought this final plague to kill the firstborn in Egypt, including the king's son, and maybe is this a retribution, retributive justice for what the king had been doing all along to the Hebrew boys. Seems like that to me. And God is now providing a means by which the people would be spared. And that second part of the judgment is going to come because after he says, finally, his own son now dead, go, leave. He's going to say, I don't want you to leave again. But now he's going to follow after them into the wilderness and God will destroy the army of Egypt in the Red Sea. Thus basically breaking Egypt's power really forever. They go from being a world power to kind of a minor power, an important but minor power in that region of the world. And so what God is actually doing here is, is really incredible but in the middle of all this, he's tell, he tells Moses, okay, here's what you have to do. You have to keep the Passover. And it means you have to go through this process of choosing out a lamb and, and sacrificing that lamb. Um, and you'll put the blood of the lamb over your doorposts. If you've ever been to the Bible Museum, by the way, that, that scene in the, through the Old Testament is one of my favorite spots. It, it really is neat. And if you haven't been, you need to come with me sometime. We'll go up there. You need to see this because you walk through this exhibit and you get to the point of, of, of this part of the story of the Old Testament and, and you just get the full picture of what's going on here as they paint the, the, door, the doorposts with the blood. And everywhere where the death angel passes that night as he passes through this entire nation in a night, kind of a weird anti-Santa Claus, right? As he passes through this nation in a night, every place he goes where that blood isn't there, he takes the life of that firstborn. And there's weeping in Egypt. 
And Moses, he had taught the people, you sacrifice this animal and you take its blood and you put it over the doorposts, really foreshadowing Jesus. We understand that. But at the same time, you take that meat and you cook that meat and you're going to eat that meat tonight and then you're going to go out tomorrow and you're going to leave Egypt and slavery for good. And it's really amazing because it says here, the Moses whose parents hid him in the bulrushes and the Moses who had no fear to stand before a king, now that Moses, it's, it's he kept the Passover. He told his people, this is what we're going to do. We're going to kill the lamb. We're going to sprinkle its blood. And we're going to rescue ourselves from the destroyer of the firstborn. And in doing so by faith, he spared his people. It's really amazing. This is now saying, okay, God, you get to decide my life's choices. I mean, in our modern culture, can you not see in, and I imagine the Egyptians were thinking this way, but in our modern American culture, can't you just see people going, what? I got to do what again? So I got to, somebody has, we had to kill this animal that I don't want to kill. And I have to eat all the food tonight and I got to eat with these herbs and other things. And then I got to take the blood from the animal and I got to put it all over a doorpost. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. That doesn't make any sense. No. And I could see in our modern American culture how that would ring to our ears and be strange and weird. And Moses said, God chooses. God decides. And something as simple and yet profound as this Passover moment, when Moses says to the people, this is what we're going to do, and I'm going to do it, and all of you are going to do it, and if you don't do it, here are the consequences. At that moment, he is showing, I live by faith. And friends, this is exactly what we do when we read the revealed words of God and we respond. When we parent our children like God says to parent them, it's having a godly fear. Woe be to us if we don't do it that way. When we, when we train up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6 says. Woe be to us if we don't do it that way. When we approach life and career choices and all the minutiae of daily living, when we approach it from what God's words say, see, this is where we're at. There is a creator God. He has revealed himself. And he, oh, through that revelation, I respond to him. I respond to his commands and promises and say, I, this is what I will do. I will follow you. I will obey you. I will trust you. I will believe in you. This is my response. And as I'm doing that, I'm doing it because underneath it all, I have a healthy fear of him. It's not of man. It's of him. As Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can kill your body. Be afraid of the one who can cast your body and soul in hell. That's who you fear. And I believe, truly believe, this is the heart of my worldview. Is that I really do fear God. 
This is why I think over the 20 years that our church has been in existence, 19, almost 20, I have watched, we put out door hangers on doors, and, and we put out the same basic message on everyone. Do you know what I've watched? I have watched the community respond to that less and less and less. 20 years ago, we'd put out door hangers, a lot of them, and we would get some response. And then I watched about five years later, we get a little less of response, and then a little less, and then now we get almost no response at all. We still tell the world about Jesus, but we get almost no response at all. Why is that? Can I tell you, our world, our community, the people who live around us have no fear of God at all. None. They don't fear him at all. He's an imaginary friend. And nothing fails like prayer and submission. There's no fear of God. And all I can think about as I think about that lady's words is how many times is that going to come to her mind while she's suffering in eternal fire? Because she rejected the revelation of God. She had no fear of him. Do you fear God? Will you willingly choose to suffer because you chose him rather than enjoy the pleasures of the world? Will you reject your Egypt and accept the reproaches like the one Jesus bore? Will you turn from sin and turn from that kind of life to a life that's pleasing to God? Ultimately, will you recognize his choices over your choices? You say, God, you lead me, you guide me. And as we sang Caroline Sandelberg's hymn, Children of the Heavenly Father, safely in his bosom gather. You just read through that poem she wrote, how that person is just living his life. Oh, oh, uh, I love that. I think it's the fourth stanza. Jacob's God is ever with you. Beautiful. It's incredible. Always with you. As he guides your steps every day. I'm building my house on a rock. It's the reveal words of God. Because I fear the one I'm reading about. This God, I fear him. And so I will follow him. And I will trust him. And I will obey him every single day. Let's pray. Lord, it, it's hard, I think, to evaluate our life in a macro sense, just from a big picture sense. And answer the question, are we fearing you? Do we really fear you? I can point to a thousand little things that say I do, but I wonder if we can point, Lord, to a few things that say I don't. Help us to see those things and reject those things. Before I finish praying, that really is the application here. Do you fear God? Is that your worldview? And do you fear him in every aspect of life? I mean, on the way home, you're going to put a seatbelt on in your car. But God could put you in an accident that could take your life just the same. Do you fear him? Do you know that the water you drink, the air you breathe is his? And do you read his words 
and say, Lord, I will follow you wherever you lead me, that I'll trust in you with all my heart and not lean on my own understanding. How many of you here say, Pastor, while you were preaching, God's Spirit was speaking to me, to me, that I do not fear God like Moses. I just don't. I really fear man a whole lot more than I fear him. If that's where you're at, I'd love to pray for you. Anybody at all? Pastor, pray for me. I really fear man. I don't really fear God. Yep, I'll pray for you. Who else? Pastor, pray for me. Thank you for that response. Kind of a tough thing to, to really think through, maybe you're at this moment. This is kind of one of those sermons that needs to settle on your mind for a while. What I want you to do is just pray, Lord, I want you to pray this in your own heart. Lord, help me to really reflect upon this over the next few days and maybe even weeks so that I can really know this is my world. This is where I'm coming from. This is the lens through which I see life. Father, please help us to do that. I thank you for all that you are doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. The pianist will play. You just go and make that commitment to the Lord, if you will, to really reflect upon this. Do I have a healthy, righteous fear of God as she plays? Oh.